0: Hi, and welcome to Mind Rolling Podcast. I'm Raghu Marcus, and uh, I've got my partner here, David Silver. Hi, David. Hi, Raghu. And, uh, well, David was giving me a hard time because uh, I do a lot of the organizing of guests, and he was like, how come you know, you just got all these men that you get on? What what about some women? We we have to have some women. I mean, we have had some great women. Uh, and then, uh, so it came to my mind that he's correct and politically correct as he always is. <laughs> and, and so, uh, Mirabai Star, uh, who is an old friend, and we spend time together when I visit Taos, which is uh, frequently, like every year, one or two times. And so, welcome, Mirabai Star.
1: Oh, thank you, Raghu. I'm so excited that I get to be your token woman.
2: Yeah, <laughs> no. Well, we've, you, we've had a few. You know, we've had Sultrim, Alione, which is great, and we've oh had I Mirabai Bush, and we've had um, quite a and Judith Orloff, and we've had uh, you know not, but not enough. We need more. We need no. more. You know. All
0: yeah. right. I
1: love all those women, by the
0: way. Yes. Yeah, um, now Mirabai uh, goes around the country and uh, she does retreats and workshops and is the author of many wonderful, uh, books. And, uh, the current one Mirabai, is God of love. Is that correct?
1: It's actually not the most recent, but it's definitely the one that's, that continues to get the most, uh, attention hmm. for a couple of reasons. Yeah. God of love.
0: What are those reasons? I want to know
1: <laughs> already. Um, well, I, I think that God of love is touching people who, um, understand that that all religions and spiritual traditions are kind of singing the same song of love. And it's especially, I think re- reaching people who consider themselves to be spiritual, but not religious. Mm.
0: Mm. Mm. Perfect. Um, well, we always, so I want to talk a little further about that. Uh, we should, say, we, we
2: should through. say Raga that, yes. um, Mirabai teaches philosophy and world religion at the university of New Mexico Taos. And, um, is a, a remarkable you know sort of fusion of of academia or at least study and and um heartfelt direct experience communications and um yeah we're, i repeat it we're really pleased that, that you're doing this with us because some of the things that you've gone into in detail are things that we we like to talk about and you used the expression that you're spiritually promiscuous which um mm-hmm. i love that expression for many reasons and sure. um I wanted to start with that, really, because one of the things let me, let me say is that the New York Times and other papers recently have been publishing articles which I think are uh, true in essence, but they give the wrong impression. They say that most young people in America are just simply not interested in religion, and then they don't go on to say that many of those of us uh, are spiritually, uh, you know, fascinated and and gripped, but we don't necessarily go to church, synagogue, and everything. Your work is a real sort of amazing sort of connective tissue between those that have be- followed spiritual paths, Eastern, not Eastern, and the traditional Abrahamic religions. And I love the fact that you've made that part of your life so as not to just dismiss the original essence of those practices. And, exactly. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I, and I, I love that because it, you just really then transcend this division you know not only the division between religion and non-religion but the, the distinction between organized religion and uh heart-based devotional um practice so could you tell us a little bit about you know how that started and where you started in your transformation? ragu rightly so likes our guests to uh talk about the sort of incipient what happened when yeah. where why
0: the wake up the you know mm-hmm. those transformers uh when you were a kid and um, and you know, and you have a, a a great, fascinating story with your parents and so on. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, Ramdas happened really as as for so many of us, the the difference between my Ramdas story and maybe the story of of many others is that I was I was a child um, when I encountered Ramdas, and so what happened was that my parents were kind of. Uh, Upper middle class New York Jews living in suburban Long Island. Uh, During the Vietnam War, they became they became very active in the peace movement. And during that same time, my older brother, Maddie, died of a brain tumor. He was 10 years old. I was seven. My sister was four, and my my little brother was newborn. And as, you know, catastrophic experiences often do, that that experience seemed to catapult my parents out of any last uh, remaining shred of complacency in their uh, middle American life, and that plus what was going on in the culture, and they uprooted us, and we went on this kind of odyssey, and this was 1972, so they had, Be Here Now had just recently come out and and had really touched them and contributed to lighting their world on fire, I think. And we traveled for a year living in Mexico and the Yucatan before it was developed, living in a remote area of the of the jungle on the beach. And we ended up in in the mountains of northern New Mexico in Taos. And Taos at that time was a real crossroads for many different religious and spiritual traditions. As it actually has been for a thousand years, for the tribal peoples of of this area, you know, it was a place. Taos was a place where everybody would meet and kind of drop their ancestral animosities and engage in trade and ritual and religious ceremonies that where all of the divisions between people were set aside. So anyway, during the the '60s and '70s, Taos was a, a real meeting place for eastern traditions a lot of buddhist teachers and hindu teachers would come here and and a lot of that happened around the lama foundation which is of course the place where ramdas created be here now in in the early 70s when he first came i mean in the late 60s early 70s when he first came back from india lama was a place where a lot it was was kind of the the crucible for a lot of what was happening in his teachings so lama ran this little hippie free school. I mean, my parents were part now at, at this point of the counterculture, living communally. Um, it was a back-to-the-land, sustainable lifestyle where we we grew our own food and hauled water and, you know, had no electricity. And and people, my parents and their friends were all sort of trading partners. I mean, there was a dark side to mm. this counterculture movement, but there drug, sex, and rock and roll weren't always pretty especially when you're a kid and you're being dragged along <laughs> but there were some beautiful aspects and one of the beautiful things was this wonderful little school that was run by the Lama Foundation and that's where I first met Ramdas was at Lama and um, when I was 14 hmm. my f- sorry to bring up death again uh, but my first love was killed in a in a gun accident here in Taos <laughs> and I it just sent me into this actually powerfully altered state of consciousness now that I look back on it. And I could not be anywhere but up on that mountaintop monastery of Lama Foundation steeped in the sacred because at Lama there were so many ways, so many portals, so many openings into different ways of being with um the holy and i was deaf had kind of broken me into this um holy space really so it was there at 14 that i met ramdas and ended up kind of uh, going off and and following him around
0: did was psychedelics any part of uh what was happening uh, f- for you in terms of exposing you to the other reality Yup. So that was, <laughs> <laughs> that's a brief yup. <laughs> Mirabai.
1: You know, I'm writing a, a memoir right now. Oh, for sounds true actually. Uh-huh. And, um, and I write about that. It, what happened for me, I mean, definitely for my parents and the people around me, psychedelics was a major medicine. Um, it, not such a healthy thing for kids to imbibe. And I was, uh, slipped acid when i was 13. No. Oh
0: my Jesus.
1: goodness. Yeah, and it was at one of the camps. Who, who yeah, did it was that? Yeah, it was in lemonade. It was a uh, oh. you know, it's funny because just a few years ago I'm 52 now. Just a few years ago i was um, the person who did it confessed. I mean, maybe like 5 years ago. Wow. And I, all these years, you know, i've been wondering what happened and she had put it in in this lemonade that you know hot lemonade with honey and mm. not hot but um it was made with honey and, you know one of those hippie hippie jars of lemonade <laughs> and uh and i thought i was going crazy and it was terrifying and Ugh. it <clears throat> the experience lasted for many months actually
0: wow
1: so it was a really difficult experience and philip died it kind of in the middle of that and that's when i ended up uh, at Lama foundation Because I didn't know what else to do except to go in. I mean, it was terrifying for me to do spiritual practice because it only intensified Mm. that state, and yet there was no escaping from it. I I wish I had had some guidance, but I didn't. And so instinctively I knew that I had to go toward that, um, the heart of what was happening to me rather than trying to avoid it because it wasn't working. And so it was out of that that psychedelic um, opening, which I, a 13-year-old had no business doing, <laughs> that I ended up um, really starting on my spiritual path. And actually, my name, Mirabai, came out of that same um, time and that same fire, really, because we had two teachers at our school who were uh, devotees of Neem Karoli Baba, uh, Surya and Sharada, and they had just come back from many, one of their many trips to India, and Baba had just left his body, and they brought back, and that's Maharaji, Neem Crowley Baba, and they had brought back a a comic book, you know those Indian comic books of the story mm. of lives of saints and and deities, and they brought back the Mirabai comic book, which is actually sitting next to me right now at my desk because. Another friend sent it to me recently when he heard the story. And based on that comic book of the life of the poet saint Mirabai, the ecstatic poet saint, kind of the Rumi of India in a way, who was madly in love with Lord Krishna, the God of love, we wrote this musical play, the kids and the teachers. Mm. And we produced it and we wrote songs and dances and I was cast as Mirabai. And Philip was supposed to have been Krishna, and he died in the middle of the rehearsals. I mean, not during rehearsal, but during that period. And so I was so broken open by the time we performed this play at Lama, um, the spring that I turned 14, that my friends began calling me Mirabai because I Mm. had this experience of embodying her, especially when I sang. And then that, later that summer, Ramdas officially sanctioned that as my name, although he, he denies it. He says he doesn't give spiritual names, but he did.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so uh, just uh, back to the psychedelics, I'm, I'm just curious. Did you end up taking a psychedelic post that experience mm-hmm. into your more adult years and, and had more positive relationship with it?
1: Yeah, you know, I was I was really terrified of drugs um, or you know any kind of mind altering substances because I was continuously, as I mentioned, slipping into these altered states and having a hard time hanging on to any kind of so called ordinary state of consciousness. So I was not interested in um, accentuating that. I was interested in trying to integrate it. But in my mid twenties. I did finally take LSD with a, with a dear friend who promised to guide me. By that point I had figured out that I'd probably been slipped acid. It took me many years to, to finally get that that's what had happened to me. And so I did, it was in the redwoods in Northern California in Mendocino. Um, So I was, yeah, probably 24, 25 and spent the day with a couple of close friends in the woods, uh, and it was very beautiful and very delicious and very healing. Mm. L- listened to great music and and just uh, was able to, in many ways, integrate what had happened to me. Mm. So that was very freeing. Oh,
2: that's great. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to quote something that you said. Um, you said, all religions um, uh, melt in the fire, or all religious differences, I'm sorry, melt in the fire of devotion. Now, let's talk about the words fire of devotion, particularly in light of what you just told us about your 14-year-old experience. In ref- On reflection, um, the fact that you were able to bring that to a healing position in, or healing dynamic in your mid-twenties. Uh, I know one doesn't have regrets about things in life, It's it's pointless. But yeah. do, you, do you think that that extraordinarily disorienting and frightening experience you had as a small, really, a, to me, 14 is a, obviously a child, even though you're obviously, you were clearly advanced child. But yes. do you think that, that that led you in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been led if you hadn't had to deal with what to do after that intense disorientation?
1: Yes, I, I definitely do, David. I I feel like the two primary factors in my um, starting on a spiritual path or being being catapulted <laughs> onto uh, a path were death and drugs. Yes, they those two things blasted open the door, or in many ways tore tore away a veil that would that is there for a reason you know in our consciousness to to protect us from the fire of that um of that mystery and and so most i think a a healthier way well i i don't want to make a value judgment i i am grateful for whatever it took to start me on that on that path and um i don't really spend a lot of time judging the the moral aspects of the fact that this poor kid you know this this child was exposed to death and psychedelics when when she might not have been uh, ready i mean who's to say what ready is and i think looking back my whole life even as a small child i had these inclinations toward spiritual life and uh, toward um, a kind of contemplative life like I was I was one of those introspective children that spent a lot of time alone and writing poetry and singing and being in nature you know living communally it was really it was vital for me to get away from everybody so I did as often as possible. Uh,
0: Mirabai this is uh, taking an opportunity now to Share with everybody. I'm struck, of course, what you said about, um, you know, these thing things happen, and um, and and they happen for the good if we can get that perspective from spiritual heart rather than from your head. Uh, but at the same time, this is probably uh, it's. I think something we should say out there that's been happening uh, as a result. Um, this kind of thing I've been reading about, where young kids are getting large doses, in this case of edible marijuana edibles. Have you, you know, we we've, yeah. we've been hearing a lot about that, and where they've really wanted to get uh, this under control, where the dosage would be, uh, you know, regulated because it has to be regulated because you can go on a um, you can have a trip just like the one that you're describing. Uh, that can put somebody off uh, for many months just through ingestion of a large amount of marijuana uh, in an edible. So everybody out there, uh, be careful about these edibles and leaving them around. You know, this isn't, you know, I feel like Art Linkletter all of a sudden. Uh, but <laughs> And I'm not, folks. Uh, but uh, it just did occur to me, you know, where... Sure, these things happen and, you know, in the end they're for the good. Look at your case. Uh, but uh at the same time we all have to be uh aware of what these psychedelics can do. They are very powerful. And uh and and now I'm gonna switch over to something even more unappetizing appetizing than a, a tremendous dose of uh, pot that uh, will drive a kid around a bender uh, and that's uh, around um, our uh, affiliate Amazon affiliate I'm going to bring it up David I ha- we Go warned Mirabai on. by the way before <laughs> yeah. uh, we got on here and said you're going to hear this terrible pitch uh, to support mindrollingpodcast.com or mindrollingpodcast podcast by going there and uh, linking up with our Amazon and in this case Mirabai has a plethora of different books that are all, one after the other, fabulous. Um, and I'm, I want to talk about one in particular, uh, but this uh, God of Love is very much on our radar because it is all about the unity of all of the uh, mystic traditions and how they all speak the same. And, and of course, as Mirabai knows, um, this Neem Karoli Baba... Uh, who is our uh, guru? Uh, when we were in India uh, and uh, with Ramdas, there wasn't a day that went by that he didn't poke his finger up and go subek. It's all one. So uh, this book is is absolutely a reflection of that. And please, so you can get this book. And, and Mirabai has wonderful books on on the diff- on some of the different uh, mystics and Christian mystics and uh, just. Uh, that would really enhance your bookshelf. So go to mindrollingpodcast.com and bookmark our, uh, Amazon link, which is the affiliate link that allows a small percentage of everything you buy from Amazon to help support Mindrolling rolling podcast. And, uh, so uh, please do that, and please go there and once you know you uh, mirabai is at mirabaistar.com dot com where they that's can find right. everything so yep. go to Mirab- miraba m i r a b a i s t a r r that's two r s dot com and go there and peruse uh, all of what mirabai has to offer And you can also visit with her and attend retreats that she does around the country. So, and you can also uh, Mirabai. I bet some of your uh, books are. Have you done uh, spoken readings of them for Audible?
1: Uh, No, not for Audible yet. I really need to do that because uh, people ask me all the time to record.
0: Absolutely, people. yeah, Yeah, they love to just put the thing on. You know, on a smart device, on a tablet or a phone. And, uh, and and travel with it. Um, so you've got to do that. And uh, and uh, you uh, people out there just there's tons of great books on Audible and you can use that link as well. And we get a we get some shekels from them, too, for you okay. to get a m- free membership. So go do that. And and uh, Dave, you're not wearing one of our T-shirts, but we have wonderful mind rolling T-shirts uh, that uh, we've just gotten a whole new batch in. Or just go and donate and help us out. So that's it. Okay. I did it this time, David.
2: Well, you do it with a lot more equanimity than I did it because I've been people have written to me and said you you got kind of angry that's when uh, we got some money and we got the money then when i yelled at people and said it's
0: paltry this stuff you're doing
2: do it for us i've
0: never heard it's such you know it it was extravagant kind of whining that he did david did mirabai that was just fabulous
2: (laughs) no but it was extremely embarrassing when i listened to it so but it it worked and people did it but we're not doing that again because it's it's kind of annoying for people to hear me ranting yes but so let's let's get back to mirabai star our star here um I'm fascinated, the very first um, mystical thing I, I ever read uh, was St. John of the Cross. Really? Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. And I was not 14, but I was about 17 at the time and uh, was just taken by the pure poetry of it and was amazed at the revelation of it because I was such a, a, a non-believer. And I see that you've done uh, new translations of St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila and Julian of Norwich. And if you guys out there haven't heard of these people, uh, which many won't have, I think, uh, check it out Because and check out Mirabai's translations because they're new and fresh and very special and poetic. And when a poet translates, or a mystical poet translates a mystical poet, you're going to get something different. It's like Gary Snyder's translations and so forth that are just so incredibly evocative. I wanted to ask you um, and get more deeply into the correlations between the mystical expression of these christian saints and of the people that we talk about all the time you know from um, uh, ramdas to um, uh, siltramallioni to you know incredible interpreters of esoteric uh, practices i wanted to ask you about uh, your experience in doing this in other words not just translating but your the the, the way these particulars john of the cross for me uh, you know, just sort of came to you and you realized, oh, my goodness, this is this is amazing. So can we go to that for a minute? <clears throat> or?
1: Yeah, thank you for your question, David. And I can tell that you really get what I do. And that's I, you too, Raghu. Um, but it's very refreshing for me when, when I can tell that people are connecting with the heart of, of what it is that I love. And um, and really to go back for a moment to Maharaji and, and the expression sub-ek, all is one, my connection with the Christian mystics came through Maharaji, which is why I dedicate God of Love to him. And this is a book about the, the subtitle of God of Love is A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So, what does that have to do with Maharaji, Minkroli Baba, and India, and Hinduism, and, and Bhakti Yoga? Everything. Because Maraji taught that all paths meet in the heart. And when I first met Ramdas as a teenager, on his puja table, he had everybody. He had the saints and masters from all traditions, including the Christian tradition, including you know Mother Mary. And so I was exposed at a young age through my parents, through Lama Foundation, through Ramdas, uh all of the world's spiritual traditions, and they were all presented as being of equal value. So I didn't know any better. In other words, my formation as a spiritual being was through this interspiritual um, lens. And so when I encountered St. John of the Cross in uh, my early 20s, he just sounded to me like all the other great mystics that I loved, particularly Rumi. Like By, by the time I was 18, I had take an initiation in at least three different Sufi orders, as well as being a devotee of Neem Krali Baba and re-engaging with my ancestral roots of Judaism through my connection with Reb Zalman, Shakhtar Shalomi. And and so they, I was uh, I- experiencing and practicing all of these different paths simultaneously, and there was no conflict in my heart <clears throat> at all. <laughs> but uh, Rumi was very dear to me. This was before translators like Robert or Coleman Barks had, had done these beautiful new fresh renditions. I read Rumi in this kind of arcane English translation, but I loved Rumi as a spiritual teacher, but also as a poet. And when I went to Spain at age 20 to study Spanish literature and encountered St. John of the Cross, I immediately recognized him as what I called the Rumi of Spain, which actually isn't that surprising because John of the Cross was a 16th century uh, Spanish monk and he was educated at the University of Salamanca, which was like a hotbed for uh, Sufi and, and mystical Jewish esoteric teachings uh, in in the guise of Christian theology. Because Spain had been occupied by, by the Moors for 800 years at that point. They'd, Spain, under Muslim rule, had been a place where Judaism, Christianity, and Islam were interchanging the the most beautiful jewels of their mystical traditions, and they all got kind of mixed up in the same treasure chest. So John of the Cross really was mining that legacy in many ways. So when I read John of the Cross, it was this ecstatic love poetry to God. It sounded like Rumi. It sounded like Mirabai. It sounded like my own heart reflected back at me, you know, that at that point, I was really filled with longing for God, and I always had been, but it had really intensified by my early twenties. All I wanted was union with the Beloved. So, John of the Cross and his and his writings sang that song to me. And the thing that I love about mystical writing and why I think I became a tra- why I became a translator is that the mystical writings, particularly the poetry, but also the really lyrical passages of prose, don't describe God or give us theological doctrines or prescriptions. They evoke a sacred state. And so I spend a lot of time now traveling around the country doing these retreats in which I simply read these gorgeous passages of mystical writing to people from different traditions. And then we sit in silence together. And it's the most powerful practice I know, the most transformational. So when I took on uh, translating Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross, that was my first book. It was almost by accident. And I, I was encouraged to do it by some friends when I was complaining that my students, my college students, weren't getting St. John of the Cross, who I had loved so much. And they said, why don't you do it? And and so I, I did, and it was bought immediately by R- Riverhead. Um, and mm. I thought, oh, that was easy. But <laughs> I, I have since come to learn that that was a naive um, view of, of publishing. Mm. But after that, all my other books were invitations to do these different translations. And I found myself in this niche of being the translator of the Christian mystics as a Jewish hippie kid who, (laughs) who, you know, is a devotee of Neem Koroli Baba and something of a Sufi and really a pagan. I'm not even sure I believe in God, by the way.
0: Huh? What do you mean?
1: I, my entire life is dedicated to, to the sacred and I feel it in every cell of my body, but sometimes I have trouble buying into um, the notion of a personified being called God, and that, that partly, is probably because of the way I grew up, which I, the part that I didn't mention is that my parents were completely iconoclastic Jews who really rejected organized religion, institutionalized religion in any form, on the grounds that religion is responsible for most of the suffering on this planet, both historically and, and currently. And, and they, and they were right in so many ways, but they threw out the, the mystical baby with the bathwater mm-hmm. of institutionalized religion. And I have reclaimed that baby, but I still have this, like this indoctrination from my parents that, that um, religious ideology anyway is dangerous. And so it's with some embarrassment that I even used the G word. but And yet, I, as I say, all my life I've been passionately devoted to a God that I don't necessarily believe in.
0: Well, it's a little bit of nomenclature, no? That's right. I mean, I yeah. feel the same way about, and all the way to love. Like, you know, love, that's a, a term that is absolutely banal and doesn't, Translate at all the f- i mean the fullness of what, for instance, what is unconditional love you know that i mean i uh, you know was fortunate to have the direct experience of it with somebody who was completely uh beyond dualism and and when i I relate that uh, you know and people ask me about that experience you know physically being with this kind of a being named Karolibama Obama. You know, all those words fall to the side. I can't really express what that, you know, uh, feeling, what it is, what that experience is, except in one way. And and this is the way I've been, when people do ask me, you know, about this these days. And it's about... uh, it's not about... it. it it's There's a, a guy named Larry Brilliant. I tell this story many, many times that you know who he is, and many people out there uh, know Larry's done a lot of great work in this world, social action. And uh, and he describes being with Maharaji with a group of Westerners, and uh, he said, well, you know, Maharaji loved me. I expected that. That's what a saint or a siddha is supposed to do. But then... Later, I'm f- having feelings of love towards the people that were around me, and and Larry came there. And he was completely looked askance at the scene. It was just another hippie scene. It took him quite a, it took a while b- before he was uh, really swimming in that ocean, and 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 that really. So that's something we all experience. Uh, if not on a daily basis, from at least from time to time, the kind of bonding and connectivity beyond uh mental um, uh, thoughts and and uh, attachments and so on where it's absolutely clean, we are just here in in a present moment with each other, and that gets closer for me to what that word God, that word love. That or the or the Buddhists, uh, no mind or or you know pure mind or you know however it's translated by any one of these traditions, each way it's translated is is banal and it doesn't really give you a true a picture. So um, I'm completely with you, Mirabai, on this one. You, yes. you, you say, Beautiful.
2: Mirabai, just one thing that really impressed me was you were saying in, in light of what Raghav just said. That you're not attempting to homogenize this. You're not attempting to say, it's all the same, it's all exactly the same, you might as well be one thing or the other. No, they're exquisitely different, we know that. But that's one of the great paradoxes of the sacred realm, that things can be different and exactly the same at the same time. And you have been a great um, proponent and articulator of that. It's very difficult, uh, at least it has been for me, to see that richness at the same time as saying, well, you know, Muhammad and Abraham and Jesus Christ and uh, his holiness, the Dalai Lama, are all saying the same thing, because that can put people off and say, well, so what? I mean, they're all saying the same thing, get rid of them all. You know, you've done a great job, I think, in doing that. It's really a difficult road to ride in a way, isn't it, to be able to say, well, it's very different, but it's the same loving awareness underneath it all. Yes?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you're both so good at this. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, yeah, I had one of those shower epiphanies once when I was trying to figure out how to convey that. And I realized that I'm not trying to tell people that all religions are one, because as you say, they are exquisitely different. But what I am saying is that at the core, at the heart of all through religious traditions, they are calling us into oneness. So all the religions themselves are calling us into a place where where we recognize right. our essential interconnectedness with all that is. And that's where Ragu, as you say, we just kind of rest in the present moment. And in that present place. So that I'm not interested in getting away from this world I'm interested in pouring myself into the heart of this world and into the heart of this moment where it turns out there's only one of us there is only one vast web of mutuality as Martin Luther King said mm. and that's where I feel most awake and that's where I feel what is closest to what might be called love but it's as you say it's not a dualistic state it, it's it, and as you say David it's all about paradox so I'm fascinated by the paradox in my own spiritual experience of holding in the same being, myself, this passionately devotional nature. You know, I'm mirabai. The lover-beloved metaphor really speaks to me. and And bhakti yoga is such a natural path for me, the path of devotion to the beloved. But I'm also equally drawn to that non-dual state of, Resting in that undifferentiated, I don't know what the Buddhists would call no self, where I go in deep states of meditation. And it's the most delicious kind of state I know. And they are not mutually exclusive to, me. to be a devotional being and to be someone who's drawn to resting or abiding in that non dual state. I mean, when lover and beloved have union, when the soul and the divine, Unite, join, lover melts into beloved, and there's nothing left but love. Mm. And that's what I'm interested in.
0: Yeah. We would be, re- <coughs> excuse me, remiss though, um, at this point um, in our conversation with you, Mirabai, uh, not to talk about uh, the very first book that you did, I believe the first book you did, The Dark Night of the Soul. Uh, is that right: that's right yeah, right. yeah. Um, and uh, I think you know everybody out there you you've heard enough uh, of Mirabai 's uh, story to understand that she's had uh, real trauma in her life uh, death has been uh, somewhat of a companion for her, and it is she's managed to uh, turn transform through it uh, but i mirabai has uh you know tremendous uh knowledge in this year and it's not knowledge it's personal experience which you know many of us uh, who are listening and um, in my own case this last year for me has been um, uh, difficult that way many close close people many uh, a number of close people and Mirabai knows them have uh, past and uh, alongside of my parents uh, around the same time uh, within the, uh, just a bit over a year ago so um I really think it would be great if if you could just you know share uh the subject of grief as a spiritual path and um you know how how we can um use it in a transformational way, but not in a fake way. You know, uh, it can't be faked. You can't just do this so that you're not thinking about, you're not feeling the emotion. So that's one thing. And then talk about, um, you know, you talk about loss and spiritual longing. And I think there's something there that we'd love to hear about as well.
1: Thank you, Ragu. Yeah, and I I've watched you. Wow, you have definitely had, and there are probably losses I don't even know about. A whole series of beloveds who who have left, exited this place, all in a short span of time in your life. So, my heart is with you. Um, thanks for asking. About grief is a spiritual path. Yeah, it's not one that any of us would necessarily sign up for. And if you if you did, I would worry about you. But uh, it is a path that seems to open at, at our feet sometimes, and we can either try to run away from it or we can show up for it. And I, I think that's what you're talking about. And, um, so the for those who don't know, and I don't see why you, your listeners would know, the day, the very day that my first book, a new translation of Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross came out, my 14-year-old daughter jenny was killed in a car accident and on that day in in many ways i was 40 um my spiritual path really began i mean i had been on a what i thought was a serious spiritual path as you now know since i was 14 at that point but um it was <clears throat> it began in a new a new way And it began with everything I had ever known about the spiritual life going up in flames and disintegrating and unraveling, really. So that all of the props that I hadn't even noticed I had built under myself to support my understanding of the spiritual life came tumbling down and were gone. and uh, the the coinciding of the teachings of the Dark Night of the Soul with with the cataclysmic experience of losing a child uh, were the coming together of these two things were important and vital and have continued to to inform my spiritual path my spiritual experience ever since and. John of the Cross, really his essential teaching in Dark Night of the Soul is about the transformational power of radical unknowingness. I mean, John of the Cross is all about letting go of our attachments to the way the spiritual life is supposed to feel and the sense that it's supposed to make logically. In other words, all our, our concepts and sensory attachments to spiritual life in, in a dark night of the soul experience, they fall away. So dark night of the soul isn't about having a difficult divorce or even navigating the death of someone we love, although those external circumstances can certainly be the occasion for a dark night of the soul, but it's a deeply private experience. It's a spiritual crisis, the dark night of the soul, when what we used to rely upon to experience the sacred the divine doesn't anymore and we're plunged into a state of emptiness and knowing nothing and so uh, yeah it didn't escape me that that was what was happening to me in the wake of my of my daughter's death i mean she was the, she was 14 so she was still very much the center of my daily life and it was like the center was was gone and everything i i had ever learned made no sense anymore mm-hmm. so the path of not knowingness became my path and i i guess you know years of mindfulness meditation practice came in handy in the sense that at least i had a taste of knowing nothing and knew that there was that that was all right, and, and knew that I could rest in in the mystery, um, and that that was exactly where I needed to go, and so I did. <laughs> I went there.
0: Hmm. And talk a little bit about how are you connecting this kind of loss with spiritual longing?
1: Yes, thank you, Raghu. That, so, um, the mystics, especially the Christian mystics that I've been translating and hanging out with and having darshan with all these years, um, and the Sufi mystics too, speak so much about, about longing for God, that kind of, um, fire of, I have to be with you, beloved, or I will die. Mirabai too, my namesakes, spoke in those, in those passionate terms and, the the fire of that longing was very familiar to me, Uh, especially as a teenager losing my my boyfriend, my first love. I really felt that that longing for for my beloved was just visceral. It was in every cell of my body, and, and I couldn't have him because he was dead. And so that longing was very familiar to me. And so as time went on following Jenny's death, by the way, I had been already contracted by Riverhead to translate Saint Teresa of Avila when Jenny died, and so they they very compassionately my editor there, Amy Hertz, said, "You know if you need to break this contract because you just lost a child it we will we will um do so and and we understand and I thought about it, and I realized that translating a mystic during this time was not only. Um, possible, but it was the only thing I could do. In other words, I became pretty much non-functional in the world. But the first year following Jenny's death, I translated The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, Mm. and that became my refuge. Mm. What I, I decided early on that I would turn to my ancestral tradition of Judaism, among many other traditions, to look for the some container to hold this impossible thing that had happened. And Judaism has this one-year ritual mourning cycle, grieving mourning cycle, and I decided to do that. And part of that commitment is to disengage from the world to the extent that you possibly can. So I really just stayed in my little cave. I took over Jenny's bedroom and made it into my office and engaged in this translation, which was really Darshan, that is, hanging out at the feet of the guru with St. Teresa of Avila, who really guided me. But what so over the course of the next few years, I began to start, I started teaching uh, the mystics and the connection between the teachings of the mystics and the path of grief and loss. And you're right, Raghu, the, the main point of connection is that the mystics speak about this in fire of longing for God, And I recognized that that longing resembled very closely the fire of my grief and my longing for my beloved child and all the other beloveds I have lost along the way. It was all, they were all there in in the same flame of longing for God, that those states were almost identical. And And the mystics speak of them so beautifully. And so it was from that experience of um, tragic loss of a child that I was able to um, find in the teachings of the mystics the medicine that I needed. And it turns out that other people could um, drink from to not only survive what happens when we lose people and other kinds of losses. Death uh, death of a human being or, is not the only kind of transformational loss. I mean, a, a serious diagnose, health diagnosis, the loss of a job, a career, um, the loss of a community that can sometimes accompany um, the loss of a romantic relationship. You know, when we end a marriage or a, a close partnership, sometimes we lose a whole group of people that were dear to us. So any kind of radical, profound loss can bring us to this state. And so I have found the mystics to be a great source of not just healing, but almost the opposite. Like come into the fire, join me in this fire. Don't try to feel good. (laughs) In other words, my path through grief was not about consolation. It's been about transformation. about entering into the heart of that fire and allowing it to transform us. And it's the fire of love. Mm.
0: I have to say to everybody, uh, it just occurs to me that what Mirabai here has done uh, with her life and with what was presented to her in her life, um, there's a way in which you, Mirabai, have taken an action... That is so crucial and important, and uh, the the best example. It, it's Trungpa Rinpoche talks about it a little bit. It is the active quality of a relationship with the guru, a relationship with the your deepest guide, whatever everybody wants to call it, because guru is another banal word that's used uh, in the West. Uh, but that deepest intuitive guide. And that relationship and that action you take, uh, uh, Mirabai, you embody that by opening yourself to, in this case, you were given these mystics as part of your work, and you took that. You actively engaged with that, and that allowed the transformation to happen. Many people get so uh, stunted by these events uh, that there is uh, it's very difficult for them to take any kind to take an action that will allow transformation to happen and and of course you know I use this example all the time and everybody out there you're going to hear this story again but there was a moment when Ramdas in India was so exasperated by all the westerners who were just clinging to him and he just was angry and uh and uh, he went and uh, he was literally in tears with Neem Karoli with Baba, with Maharaji. And uh, Maharaji said, you're angry? And he said, yes, I'm very angry at these these adharmic, uh, unrighteous Westerners. And he, uh, Maharaji called for a glass of warm milk. He said, I'm, I will give you this warm milk, but you have to drink it. So in this case, in your life, you drank from that glass of warm milk from from the Guru, in in this manifestation uh, through the mystics, and uh, and even with this tremendous loss, uh, you know, transformed your life. You're you know you're a great example, Mirabai, for people, and uh, you know we really appreciate you being with us today.
1: Thank you, Raghu. I think there are lots of us who, who intuitively know to do that, and many of your listeners have done that same kind of leaning into it. And mm. So I bow to all of you.
0: Mm. Yes, absolutely. Nevertheless, is- it's
2: extremely useful, and I hate to use such a such a word like that useful, but um, to hear the, the fact that in, in extremis uh, you transcended it despite I'm sure enormous emotional
1: mm, thank power you, I, I,
2: you know it, uh, to me I mean just I, I think it's this one of the simple, single most crucial challenges in everyone's life I mean you know everyone loses something sometime and we all lose ourselves eventually but it, there aren't that many well let's not be judgmental we need I need uh, a, a beautiful, touching, sincere, and as you said before, not consolation. It is consolation ultimately, but it's not seeking consolation. It is using the mystical connection, the divine mystical connection, however one sees that particular shape of experience, to help others deal with what seems like such a finality and such a darn difficult thing to get over. And you know that is not grief counseling it's 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 really the articulation of transformation and the possibility and potential of using of 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 utilizing what seems to be devastating experience and um more important than i, I can think of almost anything offhand I can think of nothing in certainly in my life that I need more than that hmm. teaching so on behalf of our listeners and Raga and myself, you know i'm I'm very touched and moved by this because I didn't know the details of this, all of them, and I really don't want to ask you any more questions. I just want to really sincerely thank you for talking to us
0: and i talk and talk about sincerely here, we sincerely want you all to consider uh getting one of Mirabai's books. Okay, And not just because of our vast, David and I have vast self-interest here, <laughs> because we want you to go to mindrollingpodcast.com and hit the old Amazon button, but because you can hear, uh, as you've listened, and you can hear in Mirabai uh, a true sincerity and uh, so much to offer uh, to everybody, uh, her experience, you know, through her through her books, and through these translated books. We'll have to have you on again, and we, you know, yeah. we can do some readings, Mirabai, because we love those yeah. mystics. And, Please do that for us. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I
1: love that. Thank you.
0: So thanks again, Mirabai. So mirabaistar.com go over there and check out what Mirabai's up to and then come to mindrollingpodcast.com and check out what we got going over there with David and his blogs and everything else he's forgetting to put up lately uh, L- laziness I, check
2: out uh, Mirabai's YouTube interview from uh, New Mexico uh, on the subject of God is Love, but it also is there's tons of stuff in there about some of the trials and tribulations of being an author Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was particularly struck by the fact that you worked for years on a, a an interfaith book and and then the the, the editor said, Well, this is great it 's wonderful, but I want to know about you I want to know about your stories I want to know about your experience and you talk about that and i I really
0: advise people to listen and watch that that okay. interview because it's very enlightening really so thank you, Mirabai thank you. and we were going to we 'll talk again uh, Bye-bye, everyone out there, and we'll see you next week.